back to... Two pizzas, a Goodfellas stone-baked pepperoni pizza costing £3 at Tesco, and Aldi's Witch Best by Carlos stone-baked pepperoni pizza costing just one thirty-nine. So where can you save over 50% on your pizza? Can't stop that. Time's up, you're right. Aldi's the answer. So come on down to Aldi, which cheapest supermarket of the year. Other supermarkets may sell own brand products at different prices. For full details, see aldi.co.uk forward slash swap. Caution, caution, manual, fuel, manual, fuel. I'm John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Abemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It's good to be with you guys. Um, I know that we were just together in person, actually, at the uh, maintenance skills competition down in Atlanta. And I I had fun for the time I was there. I know you guys were exhausted. I hope you're recovered by now. <laughs> I, I have slept, fun. I mean, almost nonstop on Saturday. I mean, I got home here. No, I got home at 3 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I just slept all day. I slept most of the day today. I mean, I was pretty wiped out. They call that a hangover, John. Yeah, it's a sleep-deprived hangover. <laughs> well, gentlemen, I think we have a, a very interesting accident to discuss today. Um, it is one of those accidents where as an accident investigator um, and reading this accident and just chatting offline with both of you, it's very frustrating that the NTSB failed to do their job once again in really ferreting out all the information that not only would be critical to the, you know, a complete thorough and methodical investigation, but actually benefiting aviation and aviation safety, especially when it comes to flight schools, given the fact that we are now in this big training boom. So uh, leading into that, Todd, why don't you introduce the accident and then uh, we'll get into the discussion. Certainly. This was a January 13, 2015 fatal accident of a 152 in New Smyrna Beach, Florida, which is on the Atlantic coast of Florida. And there was a pilot who was uh, building up hours and trying to get uh, at least comfortable with flying again, who for reasons that are not quite clear from the report, um, took a several unsanctioned flights. That is, uh, she was being checked out in this aircraft, had taken some flights in the aircraft, one with an instructor, one with another pilot. She had not been signed off to fly solo with this aircraft. And in spite of that, 
Um, she went out one day, took it up for several flights, and the last flight was at night in IMC conditions. And uh, she apparently lost uh, control of the aircraft and crashed. But keep in mind, this is not a rookie pilot. This is not a, a training pilot. This is a pilot who had a commercial rating, had over 400 hours total. But interestingly, only about 1.3 of those hours were at night. And this event happened at night. There was IMC conditions at the airport and near the airport. And it's, uh, well, kind of confusing what would go through someone's mind with that kind of background to take off in that kind of weather. And that gets into what we're going to discuss here, among other things. How well did the NTSB really ask the right questions about what happened? And when you look at this accident, let's start with uh, with the pilot. She's 38 years old. She's from Japan. And one of the first things that I noticed in not only reading the report, but actually listening to the ATC transcript uh, or uh, ATC tapes was the fact that her English was not very good. In fact, it was almost non-existent. And when looking at her background, she supposedly had attended and completed an, um, an aviation English course in Santa Monica, California. And uh, and that was to basically bring her up to a level four English proficiency. But it was quite evident in the two-way communications that she was nowhere near that. So, of course, the first question that I have as an investigator is, how did she pass any of her certificate and rating check rides? Because the FAA requires you to be able to communicate effectively and efficiently with air traffic control. Based on this tran or this um, this ATC discussion that I listened to, there's no way she, she was not using proper aviation phraseology. Of course, under the circumstances, she was scared. Um, she was high stress, high anxiety. She was crying. There were a variety of other things. Take that aside and just look at her ability to communicate. She never identified who she was as far as what kind of aircraft, what the end number was. She uh, and, and when she was communicating, um, she was on the wrong frequency at one point. 
um, because she had transposed some numbers. When she did get onto the guard frequency, 121.5, rather than either declaring an emergency, identifying who she was as far as aircraft and end number, she basically was calling hello, hello in the blind like she was making a telephone call. And of course, ATC was monitoring 121.5 and ended up answering her. And we'll get into the ATC issues that the NTSB brought up, plus what we've discussed briefly. But here you now have a 400-hour commercial instrument, multi-engine rated pilot who, when you look at the circumstances of this accident, had no business being in the air. She got lost. She didn't know where she was. How is it that you can have a commercial instrument, multi-engine ticket, and, and be flying a Cessna 150, take off and not know where you are? I mean, that's, I, I just, that blows my mind as an investigator. But the bigger thing is, and Todd, you brought it up, and that was, where was the pre-flight here? Because this really starts before she ever got in the airplane. Like you said, she was trying to get checked out. She had done a lot of her flight training on the West Coast. Now she's on the East Coast. And she was getting checked out at this company where you can buy blocks of flight time. And it's obvious why she was doing that. She was trying to build her hours so she could get into commercial flying. And, and so we don't know whether or not she actually bought those hours, but she did go up with a flight instructor. The flight instructor flew with her and didn't really sign her off. Then she went up with a safety pilot on a long cross country who was also a flight instructor and would not sign her off, citing that her landings needed to be better. Now, the story doesn't just stop there. Typically as a flight instructor, you don't sign somebody off. You take the keys, you give it back to the, the owner or the dispatch group at the, at the company, and she goes home and you go home. Well, apparently, this pilot kept the keys for some reason, had access to this airplane. And now, like you said, Todd, she take, she took a couple of unauthorized flights during the day. And then, of course, the accident flight occurred at night. The bigger issue, though, is she apparently never bothered to check the weather. Because if she really understood the weather, that airplane would have never been in the air that night because there was a front moving through, low ceilings, gusty winds. Um, it was going to be IMC, and in fact, she ended up encountering those IMC conditions at night, which really started this whole sequence of events. And also, uh, this night flight, part of it toward the end, was occurring over the ocean. So even in the event that she was able to uh, look down and see the surface, there might not have been anything in the way of features or lights to visually ascertain uh, where the horizon was. So a uh, loss of uh, no moon. There was no moon there. And no moon. Yeah. So being in those kinds of conditions, um, she's wandering around, and she was at a very low altitude because of the cloud deck. She was between six and nine hundred feet AGL, and and again, wandering around. When you look at the radar track that uh, the NTSB has in their docket. I mean, there was no rhyme or reason to this flying other than the fact that she was lost. She did confess that she was lost, but she never identified to ATC who she was, where she thought she was, what she was as far as an aircraft. And and then, of course, 
there was some question about whether or not the air traffic controllers actually followed proper procedure because when they did establish two-way radio contact with her, they never asked her who she was, where she was, what she was as far as aircraft, nor did they ask her whether or not she was qualified for IFR flight. And all of those reside in the 71-10-65 handbook that the uh, controllers must follow. There is a litany of things, and they never got into it. But this is where I'm torn, and I don't know how you guys feel about it. But again, when I listened to what the air traffic controller was trying to do, when uh, this pilot comes on frequency and is using, I, I can't even say it's anywhere near aviation phraseology, she's talking in broken English that is barely understandable. And the, the air traffic controller tried to get some information and tried to give her some instruction, that is, tried to give the pilot instruction about headings to fly and where an airport might be. It was just, it, it's unbelievable that this woman pilot, because of her poor English skills, was capable of not only accumulating these certificates and ratings, but now she's in a position where she cannot communicate effectively to get the help that she needs to get down on the ground successfully. You know what, interestingly, uh, buried in some very small print, her pilot's license was issued in Japan. She didn't have an FAA-issued pilot license. They, they must have transferred it over. And yeah, yeah, she resides in the database, the FAA database. It was issued in a 737. So she probably, uh, oh, that's interesting. And again, that none of that is brought up as to her training background and history based on what you just said, John. None of that's talked about. So we don't know what kind of training she actually had. It's obvious that, um, again, she's flying a Cessna 152. And, I mean, she have a you have a sectional chart i don't know how well this airplane was equipped whether it had gps or not but at that time 2015 2016 i mean i have an ipad with you know moving map displays and everything else there's a lot of data out there to help you um and it's obvious that she wasn't capable of utilizing looking out the window because of the weather most likely um, not being familiar with the area, most likely, but none of this is discussed. And it's not discussed as to what kind of training she received on the West Coast. If it was me, I would have been all over the flight schools out in California. I would have been all over those flight instructors who signed her off. She even had an IPC, an instrument proficiency check, right before she started flying out in, Cal or out in uh, Florida and on this accident flight, if she's instrument rating and she passed an IPC, then why couldn't she transition the instruments and fly just fine while she seeked help from ATC? She should have never lost control of this airplane because she was instrument rated. And other things about the report and the public docket, there were gaps there that uh, needed some explanation. For example, the two instructors on the West Coast who 
pastor in, in the test they were doing were unaware of uh, the fact that she what was in Florida and why she went to Florida. So it begs the question, what was going on in this person's life? And also, how close of a relationship do these instructors have with their students? Is this a sort of thing where they don't like to do follow-up or, you know, you pay your money and, you know, thank you very much. We'll see the next student. And also there were gaps, about seven-week gap between what happened on the West Coast and the hour she flew in Florida. And she'd flown a few flights before the accident flight. And before she had the IPC, there was like, in her logbook, like a six-month gap, which, again, begs the question, how much yeah. fun was this person doing? Not much, yeah. probably. But on top of that, you had brought up that she only had about an hour, a little over an hour in night flying. She only had a little over an hour and a half of actual instrument time, which I, I just find hard to believe. But, I mean... <laughs> Again, I would be all over those flight schools out there, those designated pilot examiners who gave her the check ride. And again, I've got the evidence right here. Just listen to this tape. How is it that she can't she can barely communicate on the accident flight? I can't imagine she was stellar during your during your check ride. And you know, I mean, you're 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 back flying and and again. As an instrument-rated pilot, you're talking to ATC on a pretty regular basis. You have to communicate, you have to be efficient, and you have to be effective as to what it is that you want. You're asking for a variety of approaches, missed approaches, all sorts of stuff. I don't know how she could have communicated all that. And personally, I can't speak to the accident pilot, but it just takes a while to get used to the rhythm of the conversation in the cockpit, especially with ATC when you're flying instrument. And if you're having those huge gaps in your flying... Well, that has a, a use-by date. You don't fly for a while. You have to get back, you, back to, used to that kind of rhythm, that kind of speed. And with English as apparently not her first language, it can only be that much more difficult. And again, that was not really explored by the NTSB. And I'm asking questions. Why not? And if they did, what would they likely find? And, and there, was, there was an issue out on the East Coast where there was a pilot factory where... They were turning out a lot of foreign pilots and the designated pilot examiner was doing all the radio communications while he was performing the check rides. That was a big no-no and uh, the FAA went after him. And that could have been a possible issue in this particular instance that her flight training, she wasn't really doing uh, a lot of the communicating with ATC that somebody with better English skills was. And, and again, that's that's where you enhance safety. Those are the issues that the NTSB should be developing to enhance safety, to crack down on some of these things. One of the biggest issues I always have with flight schools, and I try to preach it when I talk to them, is to have better control over their students and access to their aircraft, one, for this very reason, but two, even as a flight instructor, how do I know that when that student takes that airplane on a solo or whatever, that they've done all the requisite things? They've checked the weather to make sure that the weather is within their wheelhouse to be able to operate the aircraft, that the winds aren't going to be too high, the ceilings aren't going to be too low, and things like that. I, I really believe that flight schools should require students and instructors as well, as a mentor and as a demonstration of what the proper procedures are, that they should be doing a flight risk assessment before every single flight. 
and then they must file it with the flight school, either with their dispatch, their however they dispatch the aircraft. That will demonstrate that the pilots have gone through the exercise of checking the weather, making sure they're qualified to be able to conduct that operation, make sure the airplane is airworthy, things like that. Not just throw somebody the keys and go, yep, you got your block of 50 hours, fly when you want. Bad things like this happen. You know, I, uh, the, uh, I've spoken to many, many uh, private pilots, you know, guys that got a, a 172 or whatever. And I talk about a fright uh, risk assessment, and they think it's a great big deal. It's really only a single sheet of paper with either check marks or fill in uh, basic information, which really takes next to nothing to do, but it gets you in, your head into the game. Look at the weather. Look at the ceiling. Like you said, all those little, all those check marks off there, just to make sure that you've you've looked at all these issues. But so many of these private pilots think that it's a great big deal. It's a burden. It's crazy where we are today with all of that. We we have all these safety tools that have been developed because people have crashed, and we don't afford us the the process to ourselves to make ourselves safer. Yeah, and and. <laughs> You know, the three of us have all heard this over and over and over and over again. There are a lot of people that talk the talk, but won't walk the walk. And, you know, if you're not willing to stand up and take that extra 10 minutes before you fly to go check the weather, even if it's on a VFR local flight, who cares? You don't know what's moving in. And here in Colorado, especially in the summertime, I can launch off at 10 o'clock in the morning, and by 10, 30, 11 o'clock, there's a thunderstorm building up in the practice area that I wasn't planning on. And and I mean, in, in this case, this woman, she's 38 years old. Um, you know, she's she's been an established life. So you would expect by 38, you got some good decision-making skills. You have to demonstrate decision-making and judgment to the, quote, FAA for all your certificates and ratings. How did she get by that? Because she obviously made very bad decisions to take that airplane out at night with weather that was not conducive for VFR flying. And then on top of that, what her plan was because she got lost and she had no clue where she was. And, I mean, the board never looked at that. They never looked at how this whole operation came together and how she got herself into that position. It's obvious that, yeah, she had the keys and yeah, she took this. And, and the cop out was, well, the owner didn't know. Well, I don't care. I own an airplane. If I have somebody flying my airplane and I've had a lot of friends when I fly my airplane, I want to know where my airplane is. I made them text me. Hey, I'm taking the airplane today. I'm going point A to point B. At least I knew. Now, the guys that flew my airplane, they're accomplished pilots, they're professional pilots. So they were exercising what I always perceived as good judgment. They were going to check the weather. But there's no way I would turn somebody like this loose in an airplane that I owned for hire, for rent, without really making them jump through the hoops. And Todd, when you, I mean, you're flying again. What do you have to do before you take that airplane out solo? Well, I'm checking the weather the day before. I'm checking the weather the, the morning of. I'm looking at NOTAMs in the area. I'm looking to see, uh, checking on, let's say, flight radar 24. 
what's actually happening at the airport an hour or so before I get there. Is the wind coming in one direction, but they seem to be taking off from a different kind of runway? Well, I might expect a runway change. Getting my head into the game by any means I can, even if a little bit. Sometimes even listen to ATIS uh, on one of the apps I have, driving in. Again, just to get a feel for what's going on. And I ask a couple of questions when I walk to the front door. Hey, you know, anything happening today? And, you know, did the airplane get fueled? Even if they tell me yes, I'm still going to check it. But I'd like to see what the uh, information is that's available in the office before I walk out out to the airplane. And, you know, there's an interesting piece in in this report, too, a missing piece. I wonder if she went back to Japan. And there's a few months uh, missing in here where she was in California and then she shows up in Florida. I wonder if she went back to Japan with her family and then was speaking no English whatsoever and and recently out of that school in uh, Santa Monica. So, you know, when you go into those intensive training sessions, uh, you know, you can pound it into your head and get by. But then if you go away and not use it, you just forget it. Yeah. And I wonder if that's what happened to this woman. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, John. And these are the things people are, you know, and and I don't know if our listeners and viewers are going, well, who cares? Why? What? What's the big deal? The big deal is, is that this woman could not communicate effectively with the air traffic controller and the air traffic controller was trying to help her. There was an airport a mile and a half in front of her and the air traffic controller gave her a heading, told her to turn to 360 and that the airport would be at her 12 o'clock and a mile and a half. This woman, the, the pilot, didn't get it. She didn't understand it. She read back, turned to 300 degrees or 300? No, 360. And then, you know, I mean, she, it was obvious she was confused. She was stressed, high stress, high anxiety. I mean, there was a lot going on. And meanwhile, this woman's trying to keep the wings level and keep the airplane flying on top of all of that. And I mean, these are the things that build the basis for, uh, you know, accident investigation and determining an effective and efficient probable cause, because just the way the board has written it now, well, the pilot lost control of the airplane due to the effects of spatial disorientation. We kind of got that, but you got to tell me why, how did she get herself in that position? The fact that she failed to do a proper pre-flight and look at the weather, that's all part of this accident sequence. The fact that she couldn't communicate and communicate effectively, that's all part of this. And you're going to whack the controllers for not following the manual, the 7110 manual? Wait a minute here. This is a two-way street. There are some things that, yes, the controller may or may not have done, but you never really got into it with the, uh, the controllers as to why they may have shortcutted the process. Um, there's a lot of information in the docket. Some of it's okay. Some of it's cryptic. And like you said, Todd, just reading the report, it's just like, well, where are we going with this? They got into a lot of minutia in the report about pilot human factor, spatial disorientation, everything else. And then what the controller training program involves with helping pilots. Okay, great, but so what? That really has nothing to do with how this pilot set herself up for disaster. And there's not enough information on the front end to help other pilots not go into the same trap. And now most pilots wouldn't get into the exactly same track because they wouldn't have 
they're not likely to have the the as bad an English problem, and they, they're not likely to have a big gap in their training like this without having meaningful instruction. But still, it reinforces those points to other pilots. You know, this is just another NTSB report that leaves a lot to be desired. And, you know, I know the NTSB has had the, had a brain drain. They've lost a lot of their senior people, either to retirements or to other agencies. Uh, so it it's kind of crazy. And I know that they they cry poor mouth all the time, even though their budget's pretty high, way high, three times what it was when I was there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, they, they're getting rid of the, the best teaching tool they ever had was TWA 800 for FBOs and for airline people. And they had limited use of it because they didn't they didn't put it out there. They they uh, used it if you rented the facility you could you could see it, so they had limited training on it, and uh, and they're getting rid of it, or they're trying to get rid of it right now to save the the expense. I don't I don't understand what's going on with that. I look at their budget and their headcount is down. I mean they got four hundred and fifty full time authorized positions. They're down around three hundred and sixty. So I mean that that should save and most of their budget has been salaries. So that should save a considerable amount of money. I don't know where the money's going within this. And they're certainly not traveling. I mean, in this somewhere in the middle of this, well, somewhere in the 18s, 2018, 2019. I'm not sure exactly when now, maybe I ought not say the date, but the FAA had to pay for some of the NTSB investigators to go to a space conference where the NTSB has authority over spacecraft at 200,000 feet and below. Mm -hmm. And yet they didn't have the money to go to a, an important conference. There's, I mean, there's something, something amiss there. And, and again, this is just a disservice to the flying community because there is so much good information to, to be learned. We have a lot of foreign nationals flying here in the United States which they could use this as learning tools. Again, this is why you need to have a, a very uh, operationally disciplined mindset in being able to communicate, communicate effectively. Yeah, we don't expect you to be stellar, just like we don't expect us to be stellar. But everybody can learn from the fact that you have to be an effective communicator to get the help you need when you need it. And if you can't communicate like that, bad things are going to happen. And I mean, there was just, and then on top of that, there aren't any recommendations. Why not? I mean, again, I would have been all over the flight schools, the flight instructors and the, um, and the examiners, because there has to be something there to be able to trap line students like this. So not so that they never fly again, or we get them out of aviation, but they don't hurt themselves by making these bad decisions. And even if they don't uh, have regulations that specify, well, as the FBO should do this or et cetera, there's so many things that are obvious here. Like you said, there are a lot of pilots from overseas who are coming to the United States to train. This is a big business in aviation. And if we're the U.S. is going to remain a place for this, then events like this, it would help to have some lessons learned for the operators in the United States, for the potential students who are coming over here, 
for the authorities overseas who look to the FAA certifications as a sort of a gold standard. Mm-hmm. Well, is this gold standard living up to its reputation in this accident? I don't think so. I agree with you a thousand percent. Yeah, I do too. I, I think that this, I think our uh, viewers and listeners will find this accident interesting on our website. There's a lot of pictures and it is, it is really devastating when you see, I mean, when this young lady lost control of the airplane, it's obvious that, and she crashed on the beach in the ocean. Um, uh, was right. It was very close to the beach, but she hit the ground very hard in a very vertical attitude and literally destroyed that aircraft. So, um, you know, just from 900 feet or 600 feet, that loss of control was devastating. And you have to listen to the ATC communications to really appreciate what was going on in this particular accident. But I think it's something that everybody can learn from. Um, so I implore everybody to uh, to pull it up, read the report, read the docket information, and of course, um, listen to the uh, the ATC communications. So, uh, gentlemen, I uh, I think that um, we've gone as far as we can with this accident. I just wanted to close out um, today's show with the fact that uh, now uh, the acting administrator, Billy Nolan, has decided he's going to be pulling the pins out of the FAA over the summer in anticipation that uh, the current administration is going to probably put forward a new nominee for uh, the administrator at the FAA. The one thing that I've been thinking about, and maybe at some point you, uh, you, Todd, John, and me, we should get Randy Babbitt uh, on the, on the show and talk about the one thing that I've seen when we have administrators or acting administrators that are on their way out the door, they go lame duck. They don't do anything. They keep their head down. And this is a time where if I was going out the door and I knew I was going out the door, I'd be doing everything in my power to do the right thing and try to make things happen as I'm walking out the door and not just let things go flatline and let the quote next guy handle it. Because there are a lot of things that are in limbo right now. So I hope that, you know, Billy makes a name for himself walking out the door trying to do the positive right thing and not just push it off to the next guy. I agree with you fully, Greg. I saw that same thing myself. And and, uh, even at the NTSB, it really is a holding pattern. And I, I could never figure out why. It's your chance to make some changes, to make some improvements that maybe some of the other people won't do. Because sometimes they are difficult decisions that have to be made. And it, it really is a shame that he's leaving. It's a, a, a real, uh, the agency has got some real problems, just like the NTSB has. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I also have a saying that I use. I just was using this in Florida uh, at the competition with people. I, and it's, I'm amazed that I didn't say it around you. But in aviation, when something bro- is broken, what do you do? You call a mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's time to put put one of these uh, grouchy old mechanics in there. Yep. Yeah. We got to fix the problem. We can't just push it off and then put the airplane back on the line. And uh, and I think this is an opportunity um, because you know that everybody that walks out the door out of the administration, whether it's NTSB, FAA, or any of the other 
um, parts of the, of the administration. They always go to high paying jobs. And my concern is that some of these people, um, they get those high paying jobs because of their title and not necessarily because of their substance. And in this particular instance, Billy's got a long history with the FAA and aviation and can actually make an impact on the way out the door. And I, I just hope that, uh, you know, nothing else, let him reach out to us because we'll give him a lot of things that he can address as he's uh, as he's leaving office. It's amazing how much you could see. And I won't name names now, but a couple of people at the very highest level of the FAA, not short of administrator, that, that are, I consider my friends. I've had conversations with them after they've left the agency. And one common thing that I hear out of them is, I never realized how bad it was. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe while you're in there, you better start opening your eyes. Because when they get out, it only takes a, a couple of months, and they're saying, holy stuff. Yep. You know, see how bad it really is. Well, look, we're all in it to try and enhance aviation safety, um, you know, from our respective positions. We're not trying to tear it down. We're trying to make it better. And if we can do it while people are in position that can affect change immediately, then let's do it. And if you, and if they need help, we'll be happy to help them. We'll give them the guidance. We'll give them the background. We'll give them the facts. We'll give them the whatever they need to support improving aviation and aviation safety. Well, okay, I've ranted. So... It's always uh, it's always good to be with you, Todd. I know that I have to leave our last words with John. So give us your words of wisdom, my friend. Well, you had us here today talking about this accident and looking at the available data. We thought there's some stuff missing and we scratched around. Didn't take long. We found other things like the uh, especially the air traffic control tape. So my advice to people out there, if you're doing this on your own, on something else that's of interest to you, and the official documentation isn't enough, keep scratching. Anything that's happened in the last 10 years, there's usually other places to go. Fight Radar 24, people putting things on YouTube, Catherine's report. Find your own sources, gather your own data, come to your own conclusions. Love it. Great words, man. And John, you are the uh, grand poobah, so I will leave you with our last words. Well, this accident fits right into with my little preaching at the end of every show. This young lady did not do a very good job of pre-planning her flight. It's obvious she didn't look at the weather. She was going to get into IMC. It was all around before she even left the airport. She's at night, and she's not very good at night. She hasn't had a lot of training. I mean, a list of things that she didn't do before she got into the air is, you know, amazing that that many things could be pushed aside. And uh, we don't even know if she did a good pre-flight or any pre-flight, but we'll assume that she did. And after she got in the air, she clearly didn't have situational awareness. She wasn't in the air that long. Right? So she should have known where she was, the direction she took off from the airport. Although the, the, over time, it shows that she wandered all over the place, but she was in trouble from the very beginning, and she she just wasn't aware of it. Situational awareness, decision-making, 
I mean, there's so many of the of the things that that we see in many many accidents rolled up into this accident. It's unbelievable, and uh, you know, and I hope uh, I hope the young man uh, who uh, the person who owns that airplane has insurance. Uh, I'm sure she didn't consider it a rental. She doesn't probably never had rental insurance. Like many students today, they don't even think about uh, the consequences of of having a mishap, a non-fatal mishap in a rented airplane, even with an instructor, because we don't know that, what his insurance is, if he has any. Right. So any student pilot, anybody who's out there flying definitely needs to cover their own uh, issues, their own backside, and get an, a, a, a renter's insurance policy. They're not that expensive, and uh, they, they really need to uh, protect themselves across the board. And that's why that's why they got to contact our sponsor, Avemco. Right. Uh, we're always talking about the fact that they have renter's insurance, they have flight instructor insurance policies as well. And um, and this is one of those situations where, um, you know, you got the owner pleading, hey, I didn't authorize this. She's on her own. Well, again, there's still a family that's grieving out there because they've lost a daughter. Um, and while money won't bring her back, um, again, there's a lot of cost associated with this particular accident, like any other accident. And that having renter's insurance could help ease that burden. Yes. Well, I know that uh, I know that you're always giving us those words of wisdom. So I will close it out with thank you for your participation and watching and listening to uh, to the flight safety detectives and fly safe. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that. And we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.